standing while I have Jim Kelly come and read the scriptures. We're going to read out of James chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 13 through 18. James 3, 13 through 18. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, may God grant us wisdom from above this morning. You may be seated. been a while since we've been in James, but uh, just let me remind you by way of introduction that James was writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of persecution. Uh, We don't know how many different groups he was writing to, but we do know that there were some issues that these groups were dealing with that James was uh, communicating with them on in this letter. And primarily, James was showing them what authentic faith in Christ involves. So that's that's the overall picture of the the book. Some Jewish Christians being persecuted and been scattered, and uh, James writing to these people that uh, needed some instruction. The last few times we looked at the subject of the tongue, which uh, is in the uh, chapter here, chapter 3, it's a lengthy section, one of the more lengthy sections in the Bible on the subject of the tongue and how important it is to have our tongues under God's control. James tells us that uh, teachers will have a stricter judgment in relationship to what they say because of their responsibility to teach the things that are true to people, but more importantly, they must live according to how they've instructed others to live. James did not intend this Section or this letter <clears throat> to be just written to teachers, though. He's, he's very uh, emphatic that this is for all of us. He words things in such a way that we realize that these were written for us. And, of course, in the area of the tongue, that's particularly true. We all have to deal with this unruly, James says, untamable little part of our body which can do so much harm to other people. Talking about the tongue. One moment we may be saying things in terms of praising God. 
The next moment we turn around and harm people made in the image of God with our tongue. James says it shouldn't be that way. It ought not to be this way. James is showing his readers that if that's a characteristic of their life, where we're harming, supposedly praising God at one moment and harming people with our tongue in another moment, there's something radically wrong down on the heart level. If we have a double tongue, we most likely have a double mind. We're double-minded and probably have a divided heart. As Jesus said, no good tree produces bad fruit. Our mouths speak from that which fills the heart. So that's kind of a brief uh, overview of what uh, we looked at the last few times. But in verses 13 through 18, James transitions from that subject of the tongue into the subject of wisdom and understanding. But it's, it's not like they're unrelated. The fact is that if, if we do not have godly wisdom, we can say some things that are very dumb or very destructive. So he's bringing up this subject of wisdom, godly wisdom. And as he's done a number of times, he uses a rhetorical question to introduce the topic. You see it here in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you is wise and understanding? Now, he probably, again, is thinking of those who want to put themselves forward as teachers in the church. Like he mentioned in verse 1, that not many of you become teachers, my brethren. He's probably has that on his mind, but as he did before, he states things so that his teachings apply to all his readers and, and of course, to us today also. One important way to use this section of Scripture is in terms of how to evaluate people who claim to be speaking the truth of God to us. I want you to be thinking about that as we go through this. James is giving us some criteria in order to to determine if a supposed teacher or preacher is really someone we should be listening to. You know, there are many voices out there telling us that they have something to say from God. But how do we know who to listen to? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? This section from James can help us concerning this vital question. But as we analyze this, don't forget the most important application is for our own lives. Always Mm -hmm. take things to yourself first before you start applying them to somebody else. Mm -hmm. All right, so the first thing James wants to emphasize is that wisdom and understanding, the kind that he's talking about, is more than intellectual ability or apprehension. Wisdom for James was not great intellect. Mm As in the Old Testament scripture, wisdom is the practical outworking of what we believe in our daily lives, how that works out in our daily lives. The biblical word sophos or wisdom describes someone who is more uh, who has moral insight and integrity. It's not just something in the head, you see. It's moral insight from God and integrity with skill in advising on practical issues of conduct, not just academic knowledge. 
The fact is a person may have an advanced degree in some academic area and still be in kindergarten as far as true wisdom is concerned. So the kind of wisdom that James is referring to rests, first of all, in the knowledge of God. You have to know God to have the kind of wisdom that James is talking about. As Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's where wisdom lies. Really godly wisdom comes from God. James wants us to realize that the person with this kind of wisdom will demonstrate it in deeds of good behavior done in gentleness. If If that's the kind of wisdom that you have, people will be able to recognize it because it'll be done... It, it shown in deeds of uh, good behavior done in gentleness. There will be a meekness and humility about such a person's daily conduct. If that's the kind of wisdom you have, there will be a meekness there. In other words, there will, where there is true godly wisdom, there will be something of Christ-like humility, Christ-like manner of life, if, if that's wisdom from God. Just like faith without works is dead, so wisdom without corresponding life of good conduct done in humility is dead. We, we, just, we have the wrong idea about this. We think wisdom is some kind of IQ thing. It is not. It's, it's just as dead as faith without works if there's not true godly conduct that goes along with your supposed wisdom. If, it's not, if that's not there... That wisdom you have is worthless as far as God's concerned. You're not, it's not the real thing. It's not the real deal. It's certainly not godly wisdom. Genuine wisdom is a practical matter. It shows up in how we live our lives. Wisdom, then, is not something I merely possess in my head. If I'm wise... I will demonstrate it in my conduct if there's wisdom there. So we need to realize, again, back in this area of thinking about the teachers that we listen to, we are very easily swayed by dramatic personalities or great speaking ability or even great intellectual understanding of doctrine. But James says... We should be looking for good deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom in the people that we listen to. We do need to remember that orthodoxy of doctrine is at best a very slender part of true religion. I got that phrase from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. Here's the way, and actually he was quoting Wesley. He said, orthodoxy or right opinion is at best a very slender part of religion. There may be right opinion of God, that means uh, orthodoxy or doctrine. There may be right opinion of God without either love or right temper toward him. Satan is a proof of that. In verse 14, then, James says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. James presents us with a description of 
the opposite type of person, the person that does not have godly wisdom. Instead of deeds done in the gentleness of wisdom, you have people acting out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And I just want to expand on that a little bit here. The word jealousy comes from the root word zealous, zealous, which we get our word zeal from, or being zealous. Zeal can have an either positive or a negative emphasis. A proper zeal seeks to advance God's kingdom in God's way. A proper zeal seeks to advance God's kingdom in God's way. Such a person is jealous to see God glorified. But an improper zeal is self-oriented. It's a selfish jealousy. It's often a harsh zeal what he calls a bitter jealousy here, because it's accompanied by a desire to promote one's own opinion or position. So he's talking about having selfish ambition in the heart, you see. Though many things may seem to be done in God's name by such a person, in the heart, that is, at the very center of that person's personality, is a desire for self-promotion or self-advancement. Not really the advancement of God's kingdom, even though they may be talking about God. Not really God's work done in God's way. James says that to have this kind of attitude is to lie against the truth. You can be speaking about God and be lying against the truth. It's a lie against the gospel because when the gospel comes home to a person's heart, it changes that selfish disposition to a God-given wisdom that seeks to be walking as Christ walked. When a person is miraculously brought forth by the word of truth, there's a desire to set aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility to receive the word implanted which is able to save our souls. That's James again. In humility... Receiving the word, not not with a selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in the heart. If we apply this verse to the subject of teachers, one thing we should realize is that a teacher can lie against the truth even if their doctrine is basically sound because their motivation is wrong. <clears throat> they may be theologically right and motivationally wrong. Think about that. You can be theologically right and, and be motivated by the wrong thing. We must be cautious of anyone who prides themselves in wisdom, especially, for us, theological wisdom. Also, a teacher may seem sound doctrinally, but have a deep-seated desire to promote self. Oh, what happens then? Well, they start. You, you'll notice them pointing out faults of other people, often, or other groups, in order to make their own work seem better or more important. Sometimes church leaders can become very competitive with an emphasis on numbers and success and church, church growth. You hear a lot about that today. A lot of that can be just self. They may give the appearance of seeking to advance the kingdom when in reality it's a selfish ambition. 
ambition that's really motivating what they're saying and doing. In verse 15 through 18, James gives us a brief description of two opposing kinds of wisdom. And he tells us the origin or source of each of these. The one is from above, that is, from God. The other is earthly, natural, demonic. You see it there, verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. Now, isn't that quite a contrast? One is a a divine wisdom. The other is a devilish, demonic wisdom. Can't get too much further apart than that. And James is saying here that just like there can be a demon-like faith, remember he brought that up in chapter 2, verse 19, just like there can be a demon-like faith, there can be a demon-like wisdom. So I want to just examine briefly these three adjectives concerning this false type of wisdom that you see there in verse 15. First of all, James says it's earthly, earthly. That is, it's having to do with this world only, the way humans do things and think about things, leaving God out of the picture. Just earthly, just wisdom down on this level. It's a man-centered wisdom, a cleverness. Got to watch out for cleverness. Yeah. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, "There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death." It said, "This sounds pretty good on the surface, but the end of this is the way of death." Paul call, uh, talks about a wisdom of this world. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. But there is this kind of wisdom, this earthly wisdom. Well, the next thing about this false wisdom is that it's natural, he says, which means it's not supernatural. It's just natural. It pertains to the natural life without reference to the spiritual part of our makeup, just ignoring the fact that we have souls, that there's much more to life than just the material. It's just natural down on this level. It's a fleshly, unspiritual type of wisdom. Ultimately, if this false wisdom were traced back far enough, you'd find that the third adjective he uses here, that it's demon-like. It's demon-like. Why is that? Well, because it's prideful, it's selfish, it's deceptive, and... There's a desire for self-glorification. All those things are the way Satan is. Pride, self, deception, self-glorification. Those are the ways of Satan. Again, it's possible to know the truth and still live a lie. This is what demons do. They know the truth. They still live a lie. So, as we've said before, you can actually know a lot about the Bible and still have evil motives in what you do. And James calls that a demonic wisdom. The wisdom that some of the people James was writing to and they seem to be boasting about, he says, it's not from above. That's not where that came from. It was from the demons. Its source 
is actually the same as the uncontrolled tongue mentioned in 3.6. Remember what he said about the uncontrolled tongue there? The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which is defiles the entire body and, and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So the same source of the uncontrolled tongue is this, this type of ungodly wisdom. One writer summarized this section this way, and I thought this was good. In sum, then, this false wisdom, which does not lead to good works and humility, is characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what he's talking about in those three adjectives, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In each of these ways, it is a direct antithesis of the wisdom that comes from above, which is heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, and divine in origin. Isn't that good? Just the exact opposite of the kind of wisdom that God would give. You see, the problem that James is addressing here is not spreading false doctrine as such. James is addressing the problem of arrogance and selfish motivation which can be present even when correct doctrine is taught. One man said this, I can be correct in my doctrine. I can attain a consistency in my orthodoxy, which may surpass other uh, people. I can gain a reputation for my thorough grasp of theology and be regarded as a protector of the faith, and my teaching may still be earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And it will result in disorder and every evil practice by stirring up suspicion, slander, distrust, contention, all within the community of faith, all within the Christian community. Sadly, I, I, I know that this is a reality. There's ministries that thrive on that type of thing. They thrive on trying to, to bring about that suspicion and contention and distrust. So what is this wisdom? That's the the ungodly wisdom, the demonic type wisdom. What about the wisdom from above? What is this godly wisdom like? Well, I want to spend a little time on each of the characteristics that James mentions in verse 17. There's a lot lot in this one verse here. Uh, Let me just read it. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Uh, Just one thing on top of another here. Now, as we go through these, remember what I've tried to get you to think about here this morning is that we can use these things as criteria to determine who we should listen to as Christian teachers and preachers, but also always apply them to yourself, apply them to ourselves. The first thing he mentions that the wisdom from above is like, he says it's pure. It's pure. It seeks to stay away from ethical defilement. Its desire is for holiness, And you might know that's the case because it comes down from above 
from the Holy One, from the Holy God. Of course, the, the first thing that's going to be emphasized is purity, is holiness. Of course, this is totally opposite of the other wisdom, which is jealous and selfish and ambitious. And I think purity is placed here first on the list, even before peace, because there must be a purifying change of life if there's going to be any true peace in a person's heart or in their lives, or displayed through their lives. There is kind of unholy peace that doesn't deal with sin, but it's a peace where there really is no peace, no peace with God. True wisdom will always lead people to morally right behavior. Just write that one down. True wisdom. If, it's, if this is godly wisdom you're hearing or think you're understanding, it's going to lead you to morally right behavior. That's what God's wisdom does. There's a purity there. But godly wisdom, which is pure, will also be peaceable. It will not seek to stir up quarrels or dissension or strife or disorder. The peaceable person's desire is to put things back together that are broken. Reconciliation, not contention and strife and those type of things. To be peaceable is just the opposite of rivalry and self-assertion. So, peaceable. The next thing he mentions is, is gentle. This is a big one. The gentle person will not be harsh or mean-spirited. They will, they will be considerate of others' needs and respectable, respectful of other people's feelings, seeking to give a gentle answer that will not stir up strife. And if you, if you read through the New Testament and miss this, you haven't read very carefully. Because... It's amazing how often this attribute of gentleness is mentioned in the Scripture. Just over and over. And I just wanted to go through. I'm just going to read these really quickly here just to give you a feel. And this isn't all of them. First of all, Jesus says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And he says of himself that he's gentle and humble in heart. And Paul talks about Christ as being one uh, uh, rights of Christ is uh, talking about his, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, what's right there in the middle? Gentleness. And it, uh, Paul says this in Galatians 6, 1. And this is related to bearing one another's burdens, brethren. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. In Ephesians, we're told this, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, showing patience, with patience, showing tolerance to one another in love. Philippians, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Colossians, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. 
Uh, speaking of overseers, Tim, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, they should not be pugnacious, which means quarrelsome or argumentative or contentious, but gentle. Qualification for an elder, for an overseer. They, they should be a gentle man. Second Timothy, Paul says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Titus, malign no one, but be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration to all men. First Peter, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for everyone to everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. So over and over in the New Testament, you have this attribute of gentleness being mentioned. Surely we should desire this as a trait in the people we listen to as teachers, and especially desire it in our own lives. One writer said that gentleness is sweet reasonableness. I thought that was quite a definition, sweet reasonableness. And we all surely realize we need that, don't we? We need sweet reasonableness. Well, that kind of leads into the next thing that uh, James mentions here, because right after gentleness, he, he says reasonable, reasonable. Godly wisdom is reasonable. Or as it says in the margin, willing to yield. The idea here is that the reasonable person is willing to respond appropriately and will not just push his or her own ideas and, and rights. In fact, they will admit that they may not always be right and may need correction. Godly wisdom, you see it in a person who realizes they may not be right about everything. In other words, there will be a teachableness. So here's something. Look for if you're looking for someone that's a godly teacher, see if they're teachable. A willingness to learn from others. Reasonableness allows for other persons' opinions. It's it's willingness to hear out what others have to say. What it is, it's just the opposite of being stiff and unbending and pushing your own agenda. It tries to understand the other person's point of view before speaking or acting. So reasonable. Reasonable. And then James says that this wisdom from above is full of mercy. A compassion for others which leads to practical help for those in need. Again, it's not surprising that godly wisdom would be like this since that's the way God is. He's full of mercy. He's our, James has already told us the great importance of mercy in chapter 2, verse 13. It is one of the key ingredients of a godly person and a godly teacher. Just uh, uh, mercy. There's a mercy there. And he couples this being full of mercy with good fruit. These would be deeds of practical usefulness to others. Godly wisdom will see things around them. Uh, See what can be done to help other people. 
and not just see it, but do something about it. After this, James mentions being unwavering. Unwavering. And it seems like there can be two different understandings of this, but they're really related. The first meaning would be that godly wisdom is without vacillation or uncertainty, unwavering. The other meaning points to being impartial, not showing favoritism. But the idea behind both of those is that these qualities, both of these qualities is that that of being wholehearted. If you're wholehearted, you're not going to be wavering, you see. You're unwavering, single-minded, undivided, no ambiguity in your commitment. So unwavering. And then James says it's without hypocrisy. Godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. And that's a big one too. This means that godly wisdom will be sincere and straightforward and trustworthy. That's what you want in a teacher, isn't it? Someone who's sincere and straightforward and trustworthy. And that's what we should want in our own lives, too. The commentaries bring out that the Greek word actually comes from the idea of speaking from behind the mask. Speaking from behind the mask. And where did that come from? Well, it came from the Greek plays. In the Greek plays of uh, that day, the actors would wear masks to play parts. You might have seen that sometimes the kind of the logo for theater is a smiling and a frowning mask, you know, side by side. Well, that goes clear back to the Greek theater because they wore masks to play the parts. So a hypocrite was one who speaks from behind a mask. But true wisdom does not do that. It doesn't wear masks. There's no pretending, no saying one thing and secret, secretly thinking something else, no disguising our true intentions in order to take advantage of others, no hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. Which brings us then to verse 18, which deals with the fruit of wisdom. And the fruit of wisdom is righteousness. Again, if there's true wisdom, there's going to be righteousness there. The righteousness he's talking about are the things he's mentioned here in this section. James wants us to understand that if righteousness is going to be produced in our lives or in the lives of others, godly wisdom must be sown in peace. He's already told us that godly wisdom is peaceable, but here he's emphasizing that godly wisdom must be sown in peace. God's word must be sown by those who love and labor for peace, and it must be presented with a peaceful temper and disposition. The uh, New International Version quotes this verse this way. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. See, this other kind of wisdom doesn't sow that way. Yeah. And what happens? It brings a harvest of every evil practice, James says. One commentator said this, Righteousness cannot be produced in the context of human anger 
or selfish ambition. And James had already told us that clear back in chapter 1, remember, he said, the anger of man, this is verse 20 of chapter 1, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The selfishness of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The selfish ambition of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So, righteousness cannot be produced in the context of human anger or selfish ambition. But righteousness can flourish and grow in the atmosphere of peace. Those who create such an atmosphere through their words and their actions are assured by the Lord of their reward. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the question then here in this, related to this area, is... Are the teachers you listening to sowing in peace? Something you should look for. And then, of course, in our own lives, are you and I sowing that way also? You know, we're sowing all the time. You know that, don't you? We're sowing seed all the time through our words and our actions. The question is, what kind of seed are we sowing? Are we sowing in peace? If you want a harvest of righteousness, you must cultivate peace. James wants peace for the church because peace is the context in which righteousness can flourish. This is what godly wisdom will always work toward. Proverbs 3.17, which is a, has a big section on wisdom in it, speaks of wisdom and says, Wisdom's ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Well, as we'll see when we read on, apparently this was not always the case with the groups that James was writing to because he talks about there being quarrels and conflicts among them. That's why he was writing these things that we're looking at today because it wasn't that way in some of the groups he was dealing with. So we'll pick up there next time in chapter 4, verse 1. But let me just close again by saying that this section in James is a tremendous section to think about in relationship to our lives, how we should live, and also in relationship to who we should be listening to as teachers in the Christian life. It's a tremendous section. Just six verses here. If you just want a good reminder, how how should I live today? Read these six verses. If you want a good reminder, now what's a good way of determining who I should listen to as far as a teacher or a preacher. Right here is a very good section. Just read these six verses. Well, amen.